here. <laughs> Hard to believe. If you return on your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, you'll be looking at verses 31 through chapter 9, verse 1. Um, Dale was originally scheduled to preach this morning, and he called me yesterday to make me aware of what was going on with Jody, so we do want to continue to pray for our sister Jody. And as I thought about, well, what should I preach? <laughs> and uh, I noticed uh, I really appreciated the theme that Dale was focusing on, so I figured let me preach something related to that. And it's a text that I've dealt with before to try to make my labors a little easier on myself. <laughs> and, uh, and so we'll be preaching from uh, Mark chapter 8, 31 through 9 chapter 1, with a text that I think is quite appropriate for the new year as we talk about making a resolution to deny ourselves and to live for Christ and to follow Christ. And so if you found your place, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, hearing our God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd together to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Amen. Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful to you for your word and your grace toward us in Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is hard to believe that we just celebrated the Advent season and other Christmas has come and gone. And in the Advent season, we looked at God's amazing promise to send his Messiah, his anointed king, who was God in the flesh, who was come to deliver his people from their helpless and hopeless estate in sin and death and condemnation. And today, which you know by now, is New Year's Day. If you didn't know, it's New Year's Day, so Happy New Year's. And New Year's Day in our culture, you know, it, it comes with expectations. There's hope. There's the year that went by, and then we have expectations and hope for the, for the year to come. And we make, people make resolutions. I'm going to go to the gym, and that lasts for about two days. And then I'm going to, you know, whatever the resolutions are. Resolutions, things that we make that we think are going to make life better. We did things here the previous year, but here's some things we can do that might make, might make life a little bit better. And it comes with these expectations. 
Our text this morning, as I thought about this, is really like New Year's Day for the disciples. You see, they saw, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, Mark is a hard-hitting Gospel. It comes out, you know, it's blazing. You see Jesus performing all these miracles, and the disciples saw this. They saw him calm the storm with the, with the mere word of his command. They saw him uh, raise up sick people from their sickbed and the paralytic and cleanse the leper and open, they saw, they saw him open blind eyes and deaf ears. They saw him feed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. They saw him do all these amazing things. They heard him and the crowds heard him and saw these things as well. And they heard him speak as one who had authority, as if God himself was speaking about the kingdom of God. They heard and saw all these things and the entire countryside was abuzz. Who is this, this man from Galilee? Who is this man from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And so Jesus brings, he, he gathers his disciples together and he puts the question to them. Who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. Okay, great. Who do you all, my faithful disciples, the ones who have lived with me all this time and have seen these things up close personal, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forward. He says, you are the Christ, and in Matthew's gospel, the son of the living God. So praise the Lord. Jesus affirms it. He doesn't deny it. That's right, Peter. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So praise the Lord. It's a new day. There's an expectation now. Our salvation has come. Messiah is here to deliver us from our helpless and hopeless situation under the Romans. And so we have a resolution. Our resolution is to follow Messiah and kill the Romans. Let's get it going, Jesus. We're ready. We will follow. But then Jesus, as he was, as he often did, burst their New Year's balloons and silences their New Year's party horns, as it were. And he tells them that he would suffer and die but be raised again. In other words, Messiah had not come to set them free from the tyranny of, of Rome, but to die on a cross and rise from the dead to set his people free from the tyrants of sin and death and Satan. And those who want to follow Jesus, you want to follow Messiah? Well, here's what you need to do. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and follow him because only in doing that will you have true life. You want to gain your life? You have to lose it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so the main idea of our passage this morning is that Jesus came to die for us and cause us to deny ourselves and follow him for eternal life. Three things to look at. First of all, Jesus came to die for us. After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, 
And then, of course, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You can just imagine the thought process of the disciples. Because for them, the Messiah, that's what he was going to do. The Messiah was supposed to come and conquer their enemies. And so they're like, yes, let's get this on. The king is here. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. He's going to bring in his kingdom. But then that raises a question, how? How will Jesus do that? Is he going to march? He's going to gather an army and march into Jerusalem and defeat all of his enemies and destroy the Romans? How exactly is this going to happen? We can't wait to find this out. Well, Jesus doesn't leave him in suspense. Verses 31 through 32, he says that the Son of Man, we'll stop right there, the Son of Man is a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we read, it talks about how this Son of Man, the Messiah, would be one empowered by God. He would be God in the flesh, as a matter. He'd have a divine nature. He would have everlasting glory. His kingdom would be forever. And so when Jesus says, Son of Man, you're thinking, so far, so good. This sounds great. But then something shocking happens as Jesus continues to talk. Son of man, great, must suffer many things. And as Jesus is talking with each word, you can almost see the consternation come over their face. He'll suffer many things. He'll be rejected. We know he'll be mocked. He'll be spat upon. He'll be flogged. He'll have the flesh ripped from his body. He'll be killed. The Messiah? It's going to be killed? Yes. He's going to die. The righteous one is going to die as an unrighteous, vile criminal crucified on a Roman cross. But that won't be the end. On the third day, he'll be raised. And it's interesting, you see the disciples. That, that kind of flew right past them. Now, as we see this passage, as we look at this, the temptation for us as Christians, because we've read it many times, we know how the story ends, and for us, because of that, we lose sight of just how radical this statement is from Jesus. What he says here is nothing short of a nuclear bomb that he detonates upon the disciples, because he totally obliterates their idea of what the Messiah was and who, what he was supposed to do. How can Messiah suffer and die? How is that possible? Well, they failed to understand that the Son of Man in Daniel was also the suffering servant of Isaiah. Daniel, the Son of Man, he'll have dominion and glory and a kingdom. And it goes on to say an everlasting kingdom. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered in to his kingdom. But then look at this. Isaiah goes on to prophesy of a suffering servant. It's the Son of Man, the Christ. He must first suffer. He'll be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. And upon him will be the chastisement that would bring us peace. That must happen in order for the kingdom. The kingdom would be ushered in through the death and resurrection of the suffering servant. So this isn't some new theory that Jesus is foisting upon them about the Messiah. Messiah was to be the suffering servant. 
This was the plan that was conceived of before time even began. Before leading his people to glory, he first had to endure humiliation. In order to save you, in order to save me, in order to transform us by his spirit, the eternal son who dwelled with the father and the spirit from all eternity, who's fully God, had to humble himself and take the form of a servant and endure death, even death, the shameful death of a cross. Happy New Year. Happy new life in Christ. In verse 32, so that's Peter. He doesn't understand that. He forgets all that. He's just, he's just focused on Daniel chapter 7, we suppose. But then we see Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. And what's Peter's response? Oh, no, you won't. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's not going to happen. Peter takes Jesus aside. You can just picture him, right? Got all the disciples there, and, and Pete, Jesus says this, and Peter's like, Jesus, come here, Jesus. I gotta, I gotta school you on a couple things. <laughs> I gotta, you know, you clearly don't know what you're talking about here, Jesus. And he rebukes him, speaks firmly to him. And we know what he says. It's not here in Mark's text, but in, in Matthew chapter 16. Far be it from you, Lord. Oh, God forbid. Mercy to you, literally. God forbid, that'll never happen to you. Peter's saying, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that what you just said doesn't happen. Because he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand what he's saying. He doesn't understand the plan. So, Jesus, what is, how does Jesus respond? Oh, Peter, you know, you're just a little confused here. Here, let me take you to the side and explain this to you. See, uh, from the foundation of the world, God had this plan to save a multitude of hell-deserving sinners. And then there, you know, the promise in Genesis 3.15 and that, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then, you know, you know, you know the, the prophets, right? Daniel and Isaiah, the suffering servant. That, that all had to happen. So that's what I am. See, I'm the Christ. That's what I came to do. Is that what Jesus does? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And Peter probably wishes. I sure wish he would have done that. No. What does he do? He looks at the other disciples. In other words, they're complicit. He looks at them, he says, and he rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of men. Can you imagine the Lord looking you in the eye and telling you, get behind me, Satan? Wow. Your mouths would have dropped. That it's total stun. Because Peter went from the first thing, you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now get behind me, Satan. But it applies to all the disciples. They all had been thinking the things of men, not the things of God. And this all goes back to Satan when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Remember that? Matthew chapter 4. He tempts Jesus in the wilderness, if you're the son of God. And here Satan is still up to his tricks. Through Peter, he tempts Jesus to abandon his mission. In the wilderness, it was, if you are the son of God, do this. Turn the stone into bread. Jump off the, the temple. 
Here it's, since you are the Christ, if you are the Christ, don't do that. You don't have to do that. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. All things were created through you and for you. The angels cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty around your throne. Look at the, why do you have to die such a humiliating death for the likes of these people? They're going to do all that for them? You don't have to. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Right, Jesus? So get busy with conquering their enemies. No. Get behind me, Satan. That was the mission he had. A couple applications here. We see the subtlety of sin. We see the craftiness of Satan going all the way back to the garden, how he was so crafty. We see it here. But the subtleness of sin, Peter thinks he's doing good. I'm going to protect the Lord. I'm going to protect him. But his mind is set on the things of man. What are the things of man that Jesus has in mind? Well, how about power? How about prestige? How about paradise on earth without suffering? Power, unbridled power. Go and crush those enemies. Prestige. We are going to be the ones seated on in special places with the Lord. Now, all those things will ultimately be true. But before that happens in glory, something has to happen here. Christ has to deal with sin. And so the disciples needed to know that this is an upside-down kingdom. If you want to live, you have to die. You have to suffer. And there's a cross that's involved. The disciples needed to know that their greatest need wasn't to be, to be delivered from political tyranny, but from the spiritual slavery to the tyrants of self and Satan. The tyrants, we could say sin, but I want to say self. Because at the heart of our sin is the exaltation of self. I, I, me, me. It's all about me. It's all about I, my wants, my desires. Sinful desires. We're enslaved to those things, and it's a willing slavery. We love the darkness. The gospel is not about being delivered from bad circumstances. It's not about living your best life now. It's not about if I come to Jesus. If you just come to Jesus, you'll have joy and peace and love and a fulfilled life and a life full of meaning and purpose. Now, all of that's true, <laughs> right? Those are benefits, but that's not why you need to come to Christ. You need to come to Christ because we're lost. We stand condemned before a holy God. Jesus came to save the lost. Those who stand utterly helpless and hopeless in themselves because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our hatred for God. 
He came to save the lost from the condemnation that we deserve for a holy God by dying the shameful death on the cross to absorb divine justice. The one who was exalted in glory brought himself down to the deepest depths of humiliation and shame. The one who had every right to receive honor submitted himself to the ultimate form of dishonor. To be naked and crucified on a cross. To have all of our unrighteousness placed upon him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Imagine, we talk about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you sweat like, as it were, drops of blood. We talk about it wasn't the thorns in the cross that had him sweating drops of blood, it was the fact that he would endure the outer darkness, cut off from the blessedness of the Father for just that short period of time. But it also, I think it's the idea of, of their being on the cross, being one, as it were, one mass of sin, Imagine how Jesus felt the Holy One bearing all of that for you and for me. The one who stretched out the heavens, the infinite expanse of the heavens, he stretched them out like they're nothing. That one became a human being and then stretched out his arms on a Roman cross for us. And in light of that, how should we respond? What should we do? Well, Jesus says, how about this? Deny yourselves. <laughs> deny yourself. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So after having stated the radical nature of his mission, and listen, Dear ones, we have to understand just how radical the mission is. The depths he went to to save us. Now he states the radical cost of following him. And this here is really the essence of Christianity. So what's, what's the Christian faith about? What is Christianity about? Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Well, that sounds really hard. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> it's not exactly the, the kind of message that the church growth gurus would have you preach. right? Because you're not going to tickle anybody's ears with that. Come and die. Come and take up your cross. But that's what Jesus says. Take up your cross. And he tells us to preach that. Take up your cross. You're either all in or you're out. Like there's no half-stepping. There's no in-between. You're either all in or you're out. And being all in means you must deny yourself. That doesn't mean you make a New Year's resolution, you decide not to eat ice cream. Or I'm not going to eat as much pasta, which I, I could never do. <laughs> Lord, please, don't make me give up pasta. <laughs> Anything but that. <laughs> 
No, as one commentator puts it, here's what it is. Denying yourself, taking up your cross. It's, quote, a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. That's what it is. A radical abandonment of one's identity and self-determination. Who am I? What am I? What am I living for? It goes back to creation, right? God created us in his image. We were created to glorify and enjoy God forever. But what did we do? We said, I don't want God in my thinking. I want to be able to live the way I want to live. I want to be able to make up the rules the way I want to make up the rules. To live the way I want to live. I don't need God in my thinking. And if God's going to be there, I'll fit him in where I want to fit him in at. We spurned God. We spurned his love. We rejected him. We denied our true identity. In sin, in the fall, we denied our true humanity. What does it mean to be human? It means to be rightly related to God in a relationship of love, a covenant relationship with him forever, where we worship him and glorify him. That's where we experience what it means to be truly human. And if we're not doing that, we're not really living in conformity to what it means to be truly human. And so, as a result, we tragically define ourselves by what we think makes us valuable. This is what I think makes my life worth meaning. This is what I think life is all about. And so we define ourselves by that, and then we live our entire life. We, we calibrate our entire lives around those things. And we know the usual suspects. Money, family, possessions, career, body image, sexual desires. Now we could say gender if I don't feel like a man, even though I'm biologically a man, well, I can just say I'm a woman and be a woman and vice versa. And I can have any number of pronouns that I want because I'm God. I'm autonomous. I'm self-governing. I can do whatever I want to do. I can have sexual intimacy with whoever I want to have sexual intimacy with because I'm the one who's the lawgiver and the lawmaker. And who are you to tell me? You're going to tell me about God? I don't need God. And that's what we do. And you see, some of these things here are good things. Family, finances, we need money to survive. Possessions, nothing wrong with possessions. Nothing wrong with any of those things. The question is, do, are those things, have they supplanted God as the object of your supreme affection? That's the issue. Are we defining our lives around those things? Social status, prestige, the list goes on. We need to stop defining ourselves by ourselves and by our own ideas and the world's ideas and define ourselves by him. What he says, this is what he says. You're created in his image. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Now you're a sinner. Now turn to Christ and receive a new nature. Jesus is saying, renounce all claim to yourself and root your identity in me alone. That's what he's saying. Lose your life to find it in Christ. And at the heart of that identity is a cross. Boy, 
I wish it was easier than that. I don't really. I'm glad it's this because it's the word of the Lord. Because <laughs> with the cross, what happens is, as Paul says, we, we crucify the flesh. We crucify those sinful desires. We put them to death, the ultimate instrument of death. Take up your cross. Notice he says, your cross. In our culture, a cross is a, it's a nice piece of jewelry. You wear it around your neck. That's a nice cross you have there. If you'd have done that back in Jesus' day, they would have thought you were nuts. <laughs> but why? Well, because the cross was an, was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of death, of shame, of humiliation. So Jesus uses that, and he calls us to put to death our old identity and to be willing to endure shame, persecution, and listen, even death for the cause of the gospel. We have a hard time relating to that for obvious reasons. Here in America, freedom of religion, as I've said before, we've been spoiled. Our brothers and sisters, though, all, all through church history have endured the ultimate price, willing to pay the ultimate price. How? Because they realized this world has nothing that I ultimately need I need Christ. I want Christ more than anything else. I'm living for him. So it's in denying ourselves, carrying our cross, in renouncing ourselves where we lose our life for Jesus and the gospel that we'll be saved. Where does salvation come? That's where it comes. Where you finally come to the end of yourself and you say, I renounce Everything about myself, all my sin, I renounce it. Jesus, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? Take up your cross and follow me. I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. Remember Isaiah? We talk about Isaiah 6 all the time. The glory of the Lord, holy, holy, holy. And then he's healed with the tongs from the altar. And then the heavenly council, who is going to go for us? And what's Isaiah? Here am I. Send me. You guys remember, it just came to me, it's just, it's kind of, Shrek. Remember the movie Shrek? Remember Donkey? Pick me, pick me. <laughs> That's, I always picture, picture Isaiah. Pick me, pick me. Who's going to send me? Pick, I'll go, I'll go. And that's the kind of heart we want to have. Lord, pick me. Send me. I want to go for you. See, if you watch Shrek now, you're never going to watch that the same again. You're going to go home. I want to, where's that scene at? <laughs> Renouncing ourselves, that's where we're saved. And we'll stop making ourselves and our, and our opinions the measure of all things. We die to our self-righteousness. We give up trying to save ourselves, and we find our life in Christ alone. And then there's the practical effects of that. What happens then? We know that Christ is at work in us to change us, to give us new desires. And at the, at the root of those new desires is a new way of living. It's at the cross where broken relationships are restored. It's at the cross where emotionally damaged people are put back together again. It's at the cross of Christ where churches thrive 
and are enabled to love one another. That's why we need to preach Christ and Him crucified. And not just preach it, but believe it. Take hold of it. And live it by God's grace. And to hammer all this home, Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? What if you got everything you ever dreamed of on earth? Think of the things you want. Yeah. I'd like to have a nice house. Just a nice house. I don't want to have to struggle with money. Inflation's a killer, right? Would that be nice not to have to worry about that? I'd like to have the, my dream job. Nothing wrong with all those things. But what happens if you're living for those things and then you get them? Now what? Well, there's an example. I'll give you an example of the now what. The one example is King Solomon. We, we know the story of King Solomon. King Solomon was the wisest man in the world. He was the, one of the richest men in the world. He had everything you could possibly desire. And then at the end of his life, he realizes, he writes, as we think he wrote Ecclesiastes, he writes in there, here's what he says, this is what life is lived apart from God. Are you ready? Vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Why? Because I'm going to die one day. And I've given my life, I've invested my life in pursuing these things apart from God, which is like chasing the wind. You ever chased the wind? If you did, they'd probably say you were crazy, right? But that's the point. That's what it's like to live life apart from God. Chasing after these things. For what? For who? As a famous football player once said, King Solomon came to the point, and he said, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Trust in the Lord. Another example is, going back to the temptation with Jesus in the wilderness, you know, he puts all the kingdoms before Jesus' eyes. Everything you could ever want without having to suffer for it. It's all yours, Jesus. Just bow down and worship me. Now, that's the same choice we have every day. Satan is always putting that before us. This or that. And he wants to make this look really attractive. The same temptation. What Satan doesn't tell you is that there is an eternal cost for a fleeting temporal gain. Notice the word fleeting. That quick. You go on a website. How fast is that? Click, click, click. Any number of examples we could give of fleeting things that we do. You go on a vacation for a week. Your paradise vacation, it's over before you even know it. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, we know the quote. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and Ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. And that's what we do. We set our hopes and dreams and desires on the things of this world and none of it can compare to the glory of Christ. I remember when I lived in Phoenixville, 
And I used to go for walks. This was the graveyard. There was a church, Catholic church, and I'd walk by, and I would always stop to show you how morbid I am. <laughs> stop by the, the, the uh, uh, graveyard, and I would just stop and sit there for like 15 minutes looking at the tombstones, reading the date of, the date of birth and the date of death, any other statements they had on there. And you see some of these have flags on there. So that person served in the military. And, it, and so I started thinking about their life. And I started to think about all those things. And I started to, look, it started, I started to think, but look where they're at now. And are, were they saved? Did they know Christ? And then I started to think, we're all going to be there. John, I'm going to be there one day. So what am I living my life for? What am I investing my life in? Because they're all gone. What were all their hopes? What were all their cares? What were all their New Year's resolutions? All gone. Nobody remembers. And so I said, you know, I want my life to count for Christ. Everything I do, I want it to be, my life to be one expression of worship to the Lord. In every area of life, we talk about talent and time and treasure at home, kids in school, and at home. Work, relationships, live to the glory of God. Listen, not to get eternal life, but because I have it. I'm in Christ. So Lord, I want to live for you. It's a joy. Right? And that takes us to the third point here. Jesus promises to empower us. Verse 38, Jesus would die for our sins, rise will return again. In the light of that, we ought to boldly proclaim his word, but the temptation is to shrink back in fear and be ashamed of Christ in his word, the gospel. And there's a certain irony here. The cross-bearing would be seen as shameful to the world, but the cross is actually God's pathway to losing shame. You want to lose shame? you got to come to the cross. What shame? The shame of the nakedness of our sin that was born by Christ on the cross so that we might be covered in the robes of his perfect righteousness and experience Christ in his glory. So Christ is calling us to be ashamed of and turn away from the things that are really shameful. And that's one of the problems in our culture today. There is no shame. None. Shame is an important thing. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we have a sense of guilt and shame. You have to have that. But here's the glory of the gospel. He doesn't leave us there. He immediately reminds us of what? He reminds us of the one who went to the cross and bore all of our guilt and all of our shame. And then he says, rise up in the power of the Spirit and go forth now rejoicing in the salvation that you have in Christ, recognizing that I'm working in you both to will and to do my good pleasure. And then we see here, Jesus says, how are we going to do this? Verse 9, verse 9, chapter 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after his coming power. How are we going to take up our cross and follow Jesus? How are we going to do all these things? It comes right here. And then the question is, when does that happen? Now, some commentators say, well, he's talking about the transfiguration. When Jesus goes up to the mountain with Peter and other disciples, and he's transfigured before their eyes. 
But I, that's maybe true in part, but I think it's looking forward to that ultimate day when Christ would be crucified, rise from the dead, ascended to heaven, seated on the throne, and there he would pour out the Spirit upon the church. And look, what, look at what it says in Acts 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Now we're empowered by the Spirit. We're in union with Christ, and He's working in us to desire the things that He desires and to hate the things that He hates and to go forth now and to be witnesses, to bear witness about Him boldly, declaring the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light and enabling us now to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. So how? It goes back to the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. And we need to keep going back to the gospel and confronting our sin every day. Remembering who we were in our sin and who we are in Christ now as those who have been redeemed by sin. We have the means of grace, his word, prayer, church fellowship. And so, as I bring this to a close, it's a new year. But we have an old problem. <laughs> We're lost apart from Christ. We're helpless and hopeless apart from Him. And so if you never have, I want to encourage you to stop building your identity on things that ultimately don't matter. Turn to Christ. Turn to the one who bore all of your sin on the cross, who rose from the dead and offers you life. Offers you a new identity. What's that? Child of God. And if you have, let us renounce our sin. Let us take up our cross and follow Jesus by whose cross we've been redeemed and set free. Let us cry out to God to give us an insatiable hunger and desire to deny ourselves, to turn from sin, to take up our cross so that the infinite love displayed at the cross of Christ will fill our hearts and then overflow to the world around us. You know, it sounds like you're probably thinking, yeah, that, it sounds like pie in the sky. It's not pie in the sky. It's true. And the reason it's true is because Jesus said it's true. He's risen. He's ascended. He's poured out the Holy Spirit upon us. Now he tells us to come and take hold of those things and to live for him, knowing that he's working in us to do just those very things. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to take hold of this word, to live in a way that's pleasing to you. Empower us, Lord. We thank you for, uh, for the confidence that you are indeed doing just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us